My name is Joshua Gilliland. I'm one of the founding attorneys on The Legal Geeks. We are a blog. We're a podcast. We have a YouTube channel where we post some content. We, we Instagram. So you can look us up on any of those platforms on The Legal Geeks. And you can listen, read, all that fun stuff. Because I'm one of those crazy lawyers that likes to talk about the law and all the things I love. So one of the things that I really got into in the past year was Universal Monsters. So... Uh, for Halloween last year, I picked four of them because uh, their collector Blu-rays were coming out. And so I got a bunch of those So I and watched them and studied them and went, wow, there's some lots of great legal issues with these. And my appreciation for Karloff really went through the roof with the, the breadth that that man had when you look at both uh, Frankenstein and The Mummy. Uh, he, he knew how to give characters life and really uh, connect in a very powerful way. And we'll talk about both of those characters. Uh, we'll go chronologically with these uh, from release date. So we'll, we'll start with Frankenstein and we'll end with Creature from the Black Lagoon. Actually, yeah, Creature from the Black Lagoon. So who here loves Universal Monsters? Rock on. Uh, this is the Bicentennial of Frankenstein. Uh, at San Diego Comic Fest, back in April, we did a mock trial with law students. Uh, it was a competency hearing on whether or not the creature could be prosecuted for the death of little Maria. And conjoined with that, uh, the doctor uh, was going to be prosecuted for uh, continue, uh, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And we'll talk about those issues. That is on our podcast channel. And... Uh, we also have the, oh, we don't have the YouTube video for that one, but yeah, we do, that is on our podcast channel with the audio, and because the, the lawyer, the law students we had from Golden Gate and uh, University of Washington were awesome. Uh, they just really hit it. So the first issue with, with Frankenstein is uh, in the 31 movie, they refer to him as a monster. Uh, I refer to him as the creature. Because the monster uh, denotes that he's not human, that he's something else, something we don't like, something that can cause harm. And it raises an interesting issue of what does it mean to be human? Now, he's cobbled together from dead people. I think there's something like seven different bodies are used to put them together. And, you know, there, there's the quote of from Dr. Frankenstein before, you know, bringing it to life of, you know, this body has not yet lived. So what does it mean to be human? What does it mean, you know, does this mean that the creature would be a child? You know, even though he has the body of an adult, multiple adults, and the brain from that was an abnormal brain. Uh, and it also highlights what a love letter that young Frankenstein is to the original movies. Uh, Son of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, they're all worked in there, and it, it's an absolute uh, love letter uh, as well. So uh, we won't get into that, but we do have a podcast on on Young Frankenstein. Um, but let's let's break down what happens to the creature after he's brought to life by Doctor Henry Frankenstein. He's kept in total darkness for seven days, and then imprisoned in a cell. You know, I'm not a parent, but that just screams bad idea. <laughs> Welcome to the world, click, 
dude, you don't do that. He should be okay. Really? Really? No. So just again, you'd call Child Protective Services on if that was a, a baby. When it's a seven foot tall, super strong individual, it's like, what do we do here? Because like, this is not okay. So that's, that's strike one. And we're going to get up to like strike nine real quickly here. Uh, Fritz tortured the creature with a whip and fire because he's sadistic. And just as you know, Dr. Frankenstein employing him, that's not okay. <laughs> so, so I have somebody here who has the intellect of a small child, like a four-month-old, take a whip to him. No. Bad. Uh, now, the creature kills Fitz, and there's a legitimate issue on whether or not the creature understands death. Because Fitz is hanging, and the creature is shooing uh, Dr. Frankenstein and Dr. Waldman away when they go in and try to get him. So there's a, a legitimate issue on whether or not the creature understands the concept of death, which then goes to a capacity issue. Uh, the doctors decide to sedate the creature, and in being the caring father figure that Dr. Frankenstein is, it's, we're going to have to put him down. Let's perform a dissection of him. Now, he's not dead yet. Okay. There are so many things wrong with that, because that's what we call in the legal profession murder. <laughs> so, yeah, it would be a vivisection, but still... Murder. Not okay. Now, before Dr. Waldman could start killing the creature, the creature regains consciousness and, you know, having that self-preservation drive, kills Dr. Waldman, which I don't blame him. <laughs> kind of understandable. The, the creature then goes out for a little frolic because the world's new, and keep in mind his, his life has been, you know, a dark cellar comes across Little Maria, and that's how she's credited in, in the you know story, Little Maria. Rose petals are thrown in the water. He thinks it's fun. They run out of petals, so he tosses her in. And for some odd reason, she doesn't know how to swim, and she drowns and dies. So the creature is now an accidental murderer. So all kinds of legal issues come into this. So let's, let's talk about, could the creature be prosecuted? Is he legally competent to stand trial? Now, how, do we have any lawyers in the room? I'm all alone here. Um, so you have the issue of uh, insanity defense, whether or not somebody understood the wrongfulness of their actions when, when they did something, versus legally competent to stand trial. We don't want to put somebody who's not legally competent to stand trial on trial because that's just barbaric and we don't do that. No, we're not Texas. <laughs> sorry, sorry, focus. Um, we don't do that here in any state in the United States or any of the territories. We're not supposed to do that. So the test is whether or not the creature lacks a sufficient present ability to consult with counsel and assist in preparing his defense with a reasonable degree of rational understanding. <laughs> Everyone sing along. So, he can't talk. He, like, points. He doesn't understand that the petals float, but the little girl won't. Fritz is hanging. 
literally. He doesn't understand the concept of death. There's a really strong argument he's not legally competent to stand trial. So when somebody's not legally competent to stand trial, uh, we've we got to start thinking about what, what are we dealing with here? So the creature's literally days old. How do we classify him? Now, is he a child? Now, we have different laws and rules pertaining to how children are prosecuted. So just for giggles, murder is the unlawful killing of a human being with malice aforethought. That's the California definition under uh, Penal Code 187. Now, the Supreme Court has held that children are constitutionally different from adults for the purpose of sentencing because children have diminished capacity and greater prospects for reform. Does that sound like the creature who's just a few days old, who was kept in the dark, tortured, tried to murder him, and then he accidentally kills a little kid? The only person so far who's shown him any kindness. We actually don't know yet. Yeah, because, again... He's sounding more like a child and less like an adult. Uh, alternatively, you can have adults who are not legally competent to stand trial because of diminished capacity, disease, whatever, because, again, we're not barbarians. We're a nation of laws. But, you know, that's not what happens uh, in this story. So uh, this raises interesting issues with Dr. Frankenstein, whether he can be criminally liable for the creature's actions. Could he be prosecuted for contributing to the delinquency of the minor? And then that gets into whether or not there was a failure as the creature's legal guardian to exercise reasonable care, supervision, protection, and control over the creature that resulted in four deaths. So when you think about it, so I brought dead tissue to life, worked really hard to do that, did a bunch of grave robbing, stole the brain, all kinds of bad stuff, brought him to life. He has his own little mental breakdown because, hey, he just, you know, cured death. And uh, uh, keeps the creature in the dark. You know, you don't do that to a kid. When you look at how you, sh you should raise a child, there are lots of books written on that. Dr. Frankenstein figured out how to conquer death, but no one gave him a parenting book. <laughs> that would have been super helpful to go like, hey, whoa, that's a bad idea. We shouldn't do that to, to the little guy. Um, because that might cause some damage later on that he'll have to work out in therapy. But no, that doesn't happen. So what's the solution to this? Well, let's form a lynch mob, because that's a great way to exact justice. <laughs> it, yeah, so, so, you know, little Maria's dad comes marching into town while they're throwing a giant party because uh, Henry Frankenstein is going to get married. And so, you know, it's his dad being the uh, uh, town elder... Yeah, and then the Burgermeister is also throwing the big party. Uh, he marches in with the dead little girl in his arms. That generally inflames passions. <laughs> People get excited. No, this is why... There's been alcohol involved. Yeah, it's... Yeah. No, normally, law enforcement's supposed to exercise probable cause, restraint. We don't say, let's go get them, and everyone grabs torches and their favorite farm equipment <laughs> to go chase somebody down. We don't do that here, but they did back then. So just out of the gate, you know, you, you have no probable cause for arrest, no right to counsel, uh, talk about excessive force, and then a summary execution, because they chase him to a windmill 
He's scared of fire, so what do they do? They light the windmill on fire. And this is one of the best performances Karloff gave because the, the look of object terror on his face as he realizes there's no place to go. You can't help but feel horribly for this creature who's maybe a week old and has been persecuted. They tried to murder him. Things went south. And there's absolutely no, no attempt to show him any sort of sympathy or compassion. And in the other you know, brilliant part of Karloff's performance is the death of little Maria. Complete and utter terror on his face. I mean, the, the man had serious acting chops. So you have massive civil rights violations because how we value ourselves as a society is those who are accused of a crime have rights. We don't have mob rule here, despite what happened in Santa Clara on Tuesday. We believe in justice and being able for a judge and a, uh, who is not biased and a jury and being able to come up with you know, facts and render a verdict, not torch-wielding mobs going out and murdering someone because he's different. So it's... This film is a really good way to get people to value what is a civil right and to not not be cool with what happens to this creature. Uh, which then, let's pivot to one year later, 1932, with The Mummy. And again, Karloff plays this character as well, and it's utterly fascinating. Now, the first 10 minutes, the, the practical special effects that they have on Emotep coming to life, not only hold up today, but I think surpass some of the makeup uh, that we even see today with, with how dead he looks and the way Karloff moves. Uh, it, is, it is a brilliant performance. But how did he end up in that? Well, it's, it's a wonderful example of cruel and unusual punishment. So Emotep was mummified alive for the crime of sacrilege because he tried bringing a princess back to life with the Scroll of Thoth over, oh, 3,800 years ago. So let's get into what that would actually entail. So let's first break down what is cruel and unusual punishment. An execution is cruel and unusual if the, punish, if the methods present a substantial or objectively intolerable risk of serious crime. And uh, from the state of Nebraska, uh, we have a great legal standard for determining whether or not something is uh, uh, meets that standard. Uh, is there a substantial risk that the pr prisoner will suffer unnecessarily and want in pain in, in an execution? <coughs> two hours of talking, execution, violate the evolving standards of decency that mark a mature society, and minimize physical violence and mutilation of the prisoner's body. Well, let's break down what happened to Emotep with, with that. Um, they, like, cut out his tongue. They extract things. It's all bad. Like, that, that's, we want to do that. Now, in the United States, uh, the history of executions in our country... Uh, when you actually dig into it, uh, if you start out pro-death penalty, by the end of it, you're kind of against it. You know, you, you want it in very rare circumstances because we used to think hangings were okay. We then thought firing squads were okay. And as time went on, we went, no, they're not. And, you know, we're now at lethal injections, and there's debate about that. 
and uh, uh, yeah, we, we walked away from execution because we thought that was okay until we really you know, watched what happened and then people went, you know, I don't like this. You know, and there's a reason why we don't, you know, despite the number of people on death row in California, there's a reason why we're not executing people weekly because we don't like it. And uh, we also want to be very sure, uh, especially when you look at the work that, you know, like the California Innocence Project has done over the years and being able to find people who, who were wrongly convicted. And, uh, you know, you can't hit the reset button if somebody's dead. So there's, there's legitimate reasons to think long and hard about having that as a punishment. But let's break down a little bit more with death uh, by mummification. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to be objectively intolerable. Uh, he was wrapped and sealed in a totally dark sarcophagus left to die. No food, no water. We don't know how long it's going to take. Um, and then there's the extra murders that they commit. So everyone who worked on him to mummify him was killed by soldiers. And then all the soldiers that killed those guys were in turn killed to make sure nobody knew where the body was. That's messed up. It's just, there shouldn't be a double digit death count in order to kill one guy. And when you think about crime of sacrilege, that's kind of, we don't have that here because we're not a theocracy. And uh, it's, just, it's a little weird. Well, but let's talk about, let's dig into that crime because, you know, to quote meat, Meatloaf, uh, you know, he would do anything for love. Uh, but he won't do that. Nah, not that. Um, like, talk to her. But uh, anyway, uh, so could resurrecting your dead girlfriend be protected under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment? Which gets into some interesting questions. And I see some of you laughing and some of you thinking, oh, that's weird. Uh, so he illegally enters a museum in order to find the mummified corpse of his girlfriend, who is now reincarnated as another woman, and all the lives in between. So we actually have some case law not on, on, on part of this, and this is weird. So the free exercise clause gives people the right to believe and profess whatever re religious doctrine one believes, because that, that's what we're about. Go to church or synagogue, mosque, whatever, whatever, whatever floats your boat. That's what we're here for. Uh, however, that's not a general protection of religious or religious belief. So we could still go like, yeah, um, you wanting to kill puppies is not okay. No. So you don't get to do that. Uh, now, if the free exercise clause is raised as, as a defense to a tort, and in this case it was trespassing, the issue is whether the defendant's conduct was uh, religious. Well, reading the scroll arguably is a form of praying. That would be a religious act. So breaking in to read the scroll arguably is a form of prayer. If I had to defend a you know, nearly 4,000-year-old mummy, which raises all kinds of weird jurisdictional issues. Um, however... That would not protect clergy from wrongdoing or allow them to ignore laws of general applicability. So the fact he wanted to light the mummy, mummified corpse of the girlfriend on fire 
and then sacrifice her current living body in order to cleanse it of all the souls that were in between, that would not be protected by the First Amendment because she has something to say about that of, no, no, you don't get... I know, I know, it's weird. Um, the First Amendment is, is not an exception to murder people, so you don't get to... No, no. So if anyone was thinking about going to the Egyptian Museum and doing that, the answer is no. Don't do that. Let's let's dive take a nice dive into the uh, uh, the with the creature from the Black Lagoon. So this was the end of the Universal Monster period. So we're now at the 1950s. Uh, this film uh, was the first 3D underwater film ever made. The the cameras and everything that they made for it were you know, beyond state of the art. If you watch the high-res Blu-ray, you can actually see particles in the water floating. Uh, what they did with the technology they had is magnificent. And the, the, the ballet scene that they have between uh, the creature and Julia Adams is still some of the best things ever filmed because uh, it, it's just that beautiful. Uh, and, and you can tell that uh, uh, Del Toro's Shape of Water uh, just give the man the keys to all the classic universal monsters because he loves this material and he would treat it with the, the respect and love that it deserves to actually have good movies made. So let him do it. But let's, let's put on the lawyer vision glasses and break down whether uh, Dr. Mark Williams could bring the creature back to the United States to go into his aquarium. Uh, I'll cut to the chase. The answer is no. <laughs> let's break it down. Because if you're in Brazil and you find something that's from the uh, uh, Danovian period, which is long, long ago, you don't just go like, hey, let's bring this bad boy home. Because, you know, the country of Brazil has something to say about that as well. And so let's not make, they're also one of our friends, so let's not make them angry at us. Just going out on a limb. But this is where our importing laws come into play. Importing the creature to the United States would violate uh, the prohibition of uh, importing animals that are either wild or endangered into the United States. So when you think about the creature, he's probably the last of his kind. We don't know how old he is. We, it's not like we saw a bunch of them. It's just him. And he's lonely, which is why he wants to hang out with Julia Adams. Uh, the Secretary of the Interior can regulate wild animals that are, are interest to human beings uh, and keep them from being imported. Now, the current uh, Secretary of the Interior might think he's great for hunting purposes, uh, but any other one that we've had in the past 50 years would probably say, no, he's not going to come into the country because, you know, they've all been saying. Um, it's also, <laughs> did I say that? Um, it is also unlawful to import any wildlife taken in violation of any state or foreign law. So, again, country of Brazil going like, time out. What, what are you doing? Like, this is our ancient fish man. He's staying in the Black Lagoon. He's our endangered species. Get out. <laughs> and that's, that's okay. Build him a nice little habitat, let him do his thing. Uh, he's also, uh, like in comparison to Frankenstein, Frankenstein has an accidental death with little Maria. Uh, the creature it really kills one person. The others are self-defense. Creature from the Black Lagoon 
straight up murders people multiple times. So there are the two guys in camp, literally just in camp in their tent, and the creature goes in there and slaughters them. Didn't do anything. They were just hanging out, being dudes, and they die horribly. So that's bad. So again, red flag that maybe we don't want to mess with him. It's like people who have pet alligators. We know this is going to end badly. So, you know, is the creature a wild animal? I would say so. I'm like, yeah, it's got some intellect, clearly, because uh, it's, it's this weird humanoid-type fish man. But uh, federal and state law could view the creature as a da dangerous wild animal, kind of like an alligator or gorilla, or a fusion of the two, because um, he kind of is. Got the claws, the strength, he's a good swimmer. Uh, and the Secretary of the Interior, interior could find him interest to human beings. Again, current one, maybe not. But um, might let Eric and, and Don Jr. go play with them. But um, uh, so let's figure out if the creature's an endangered species. Uh, he's endangered if uh, uh, of extinction if a all or a significant part of his range is you no know, uh, could be lost. Well, he's just in this little lagoon. That seems like he has a limited range. Now, how far down the, you know the river does he go? It seems like he's just hanging out in one little spot. That seems like a very narrow place for him to live. I think he would be endangered. Uh, so, other evidence of endangerment is um, there's no other evidence of living relatives of him. They found fossils of another one, which then goes to the issue of how old is this thing. Uh, we also don't know how he reproduces. So if it's asexual, okay, we're probably all right. If it's like most other species on the planet, probably not. So again, problem, problem's there. So he's probably under a threat of extinction. So leave him alone, let him do his thing. He's kind of like a white rhino at this point. And don't mess with him. Well, let's jump to uh, the Wolfman, which is a wonderful, wonderful lesson in don't be a peeping Tom. So uh, I love Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance in this because he comes off as a very cocky, arrogant uh, son who returns back from California back to England. Uh, World War II is just beginning because this was 1941. And uh, he comes back with a telescope. And he's very, you know, it's a big one. Like it's like we're going to go name craters on the moon <laughs> type telescope. So what's he do with it the first thing? He aims it into town. And for what is probably the creepiest scene of this horror movie, is this is how he spots Gwen, because she's putting on earrings, and he sees her through her window with his high-power telescope. And like with every part of the Me Too movement, and, and again, my lawyer senses going off, this is bad. <laughs> It'd be one thing if like he just spotted her on accident while like trying to look and you know, figure out how the telescope works, and it wasn't intentional. But when you zoom in on somebody through their window with a high-powered telescope that's clearly meant for looking at the moon, Mars, you're creepy. So, yeah, no means no. Don't do that. Well, you know, cue up the Rod uh, Stewart song, Infactuation, because that's what's happening right now, because he then decides to go, go check her out. And... Uh, uh, California law, we don't have a 
We don't say peeping Tom. Other states do. And uh, it's amazing. Uh, laws are written as somebody's epitaph. Like, we don't do this stuff proactively, going like, hey, this could be a problem. Let's, put this, let's write a law. So, like, I think it was, I don't remember which other state it was, but they actually wrote in drones, meaning that that happened there. Because, <laughs> again, we're not proactive. We're reactive when it comes to laws. But uh, the California law is a reasonable expectation of privacy with the intent to invade the privacy of another person or persons inside. If you're looking at ladies with a telescope, that's invasion of privacy. Don't do that. Humble legal advice. So because he went looking at her through a telescope and he then goes to talk to her and she's engaged to another guy, he then goes to take her to a gypsy festival and that's how he ends up getting uh, infected with the werewolf virus and turning into a werewolf. But for looking through the telescope, if he had never done that, never found out about Gwen and then never went to that gypsy party, he would not have been bit by Bella and turned into a werewolf himself. So, all bad. All bad, all the way around. Uh, plus, you get it prosecuted for invasion of privacy, in addition to being a peeping Tom. So, um, now we have the duty to warn. Now, people who have the curse of the werewolf, if they look at the palm of somebody's hands, they can see a pentagram on that hand, and that means that person's going to be their next victim. You would have a duty to warn them. Now, let's break down what this, how this would work. In California... Uh, we have issues with the duty to warn. So, like, uh, dangerous felons get released. You know, if, if the guy, if somebody was released from prison and, like, they were violent in prison, you don't need to warn the neighborhood that, like, hey, this guy could be violent because there's no direct specific threat to anyone. But if that person in prison said, like, I'm going to go kill that insurance agent, now it's specific. Duty to warn. Or, I want to go kill my ex-lawyer. Duty to warn. I want to go kill the cops that arrested me. Duty to warn. <laughs> okay, it's... That's, that's not a good surprise. So, specific person's now known. Well, if he could see the pentagram, they're known. So, what do you do about that? Well, the crazy thing is to warn them. Hey, I'm going to turn into a wolf a little later, so you should really get the hell away from me. FYI, I care about you and I don't want to rip you apart. Hugs and kisses. Get out. Uh, so that's one option. The other option is I need to be chained to a wall because when the moon comes out and I'm going to get you know all wolfy and want to rip people apart, it's probably a really good idea for me to be in prison so I don't hurt anyone. So like that's the other option. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Larry doesn't do those things. I mean, like he tries but it all falls apart because you have people not believing him. Uh, and that, that's kind of understandable because modern society going like, okay, you turn into a werewolf. And uh, naturally, it's, it's Larry's dad who ends up putting him down. Now, you have, then have the issue with unknown victims. Uh, could the insanity defense apply to him? Because he turns into a wolf and he goes out and kills somebody. You know, there's a good argument that yeah, he did have a disease where he didn't understand the wrongfulness of his actions because he turned into a big wolf. Medically speaking, there's a lot there that we could go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he 
kind of didn't know what was going on. It's pretty clear. Temporary insanity. Yeah, and uh, insanity defense applies. But the issue, he knows he's going to turn into it. So that's, that's the falling down point of whether or not he took reasonable steps to contain himself so he wouldn't get out. So now if he took reasonable steps so he wouldn't get out, but he still got out somehow, I think there's a good insanity defense argument. If, however, he knows he's going to turn into the, the werewolf, he does nothing to stop it, that's now reckless behavior that endangers the lives of other people. So he should be prosecuted. It'd be, it'd be like firing a gun wildly into a crowd. It's like, I didn't know, I wasn't aiming at anyone. It's like, yeah, but there were still 150 people there and you hit six. So that's on you. So that's the big problem with Larry Talbot. So with that, when I don't have the slides, I go a lot faster with this. Um, so that's, that's where we end with this part of Universal Monsters. So any questions? Yes, sir. A question when it comes to the undead and property damage. Like, is Imhotep um, allowed to have the things back that he had in life? Are those considered wrongfully taken from him? Is he entitled to having his property back? Or is Dracula allowed to own his castle being dead? Uh, brilliant question, and we really haven't jumped into that. Uh, so a couple years ago, I did a post on Ghostbusters, whether or not they could be uh, sued for false imprisonment. Mm -hmm. And the laws that we have today are, are uh, designed to protect the living. So the dead don't have rights. And because the goal is to get dead bodies buried as soon as possible, because we don't contemplate people coming back from the dead. So, Would there be any precedent on like, somebody who died on the operating table and then came back? Was no. Uh, the closest we have are people who were declared dead uh, because they were gone for like seven years and whether or not life insurance money had to be paid back by their survivors. That's come up, but not, not in this context. So with Emotep, one could argue that he was dead for nearly 4,000 years. So the property that he had 4,000 years ago is considered abandoned, abandoned after seven. Um, <laughs> so we've exceeded that. Uh, on the flip side, if the undead mummy came in wanting something back, I would say give it to him. <laughs> it's all you. Does that apply to uh, Captain America getting defrosted? We'll talk about him in a minute. For but yet, years. The back pay issue is a great one. Um, <laughs> Because uh, he would, he, he should retire very comfortably. Uh, but specifically for you, uh, untested in a variety of areas because there's a good issue for abandonment. Uh, I did a post about the One Ring of Saruman uh, from Lord of the Rings because that's also one that 4,000 years passes. And that could be argued lost at various times, abandoned because of you know, the, the amount of time that also passes. Um, so there, there's a good argument that Emotep's personal property has gone the ways of the wind across Egypt. So should the, the one ring end up like at an auction house? Uh, no, it's, uh, Bilbo was the rightful owner from Gollum and then Frodo and got it as a gift legitimately. Great post about it, but again, I'm a geek that way. Um, is still technically stolen property because it was stolen off the uh, throne of like, cut it off. Spoils of war. 
the game that Bilbo and uh, Gollum play. So Bilbo won it fairly. Gambling guy. Uh, so, <coughs> well, yes. Gabby? Um, I had a question about uh, Frankenstein. Okay. So you quoted the, um, the basis for uh, different, different treatment of children mm -hmm. based on, um, and one of the factors was the greater capacity for reform. Mm -hmm. Does Frankenstein have that since... Or sorry, Frankenstein's monster or creature. Frankenstein's creature, um, because although he has the life experience of a baby, he has the brain of an adult. But that doesn't mean that when the brain was jump started, yeah, it might have been a you know reverted him to being a blank tablet, so he's starting fresh. But where right. But as far that? as like neuro neurologically, like was his brain. You know, still growing the way that a child's brain. Arguably through, arguably through experience. So what we did, so at San Diego Comic Fest, we did a mock trial on on this issue, and what the judge ruled on, and it was great because I, I tried setting up some lawyer traps for the judge, and she was smarter than me and navigated them brilliantly. Uh, so uh, it was Judge Carol Nahara. Judge Nahara, when she was a prosecutor, prosecuted the Menendez brothers. Um, yeah, she's got some chops, and she's <laughs> super sweet. Her chambers are full of Star Wars toys and Marvel stuff. She is, she rocks. Um, and she'll be with us at San Diego Comic-Con. She's just a sweetheart. Uh, but she kicks ass in court. And uh, so what she ruled, ultimately, was that Frankenstein's creature, um, to avoid prejudice, was going to be called Bop because we want a fair trial, and if the court's referring to someone as the creature or the monster, that's creating bias. Um, and as we learned with Bakers in Colorado, we shouldn't do that, because then you don't get to the merits of the case. So Bob uh, could was a child, but could be prosecuted as an adult because of the severity of his crimes. So that was one way she got out of the checkmate scenario that I created. The other way was um, uh, Bob was ultimately found to be incapable of standing trial because of his mental capacity and was uh, sent to a mental health facility for treatment, which was the right call uh, because of all the bad things that, that had happened to him. The doctor uh, couldn't be prosecuted for the four people who died. But uh, the court advised the prosecution to add charges of attempted murder to the doctor because to, you know, wanting to perform a vivisection to put down uh, the creature, that would, that would be attempted murder. And that's all bad. So a lot of stuff there. Your hand's been up, then yours. Uh, I'm just curious about, in terms of a legal case, does uh, the creature have a legal right to the name Frankenstein as it is the family name? Of, of the doctor, and as his creation, would he, could he be considered the son and therefore have a legal right to be called a Frankenstein? That was part of the issue with, with the doctor on whether or not uh, paternity could be established because it's not biologically, uh, because there's no shared DNA and the creature was not created you know, in the way that human beings normally are. So, uh, but you could have it from a, like an adoption standpoint that when, when somebody's adopted legally, uh, you know the the rights from the parent are grafted on to the adoptee, 
and you could find it in a similar way with with an artificial being created that way from from parentage at least that's what I would argue if I had to yes ma'am Uh, it's not malpractice, but it's violating um, uh, the Nuremberg uh, Accords that we have, the Helsinki uh, Proclamation. All the things that we put in into effect that's in, law, in California is law. That All the stuff that the Nazis did as ex experiments, that's law in California that you don't get to do that. And so, uh, so the, the body stealing, which is an actual crime... Uh, the unlicensed autopsies, uh, the experimentation on corpses, all of those things are fair game for him to be prosecuted on and lose his medical license if that was in the United States. So, yeah, just for fun. Uh, other questions? Yes, sir? Okay. I, it's been a while since I watched The Wolfman. Okay. So he is killed by his father at the end? Yep. Is he a wolf at the time? Mm-hmm. So is that an endangered species? No. Uh, it was. It was. <laughs> it falls under defense of others because his father kills him, trying to stop him from killing somebody else. And he uses the silver cane, what the wolf said, to bash him in. And uh, in the sequel, uh, I haven't watched the sequel in decades, uh, but the, basically there are grave robbers and when the corpse is exposed to the full moon, it reanimates him. Um, and that's how we get uh, you know, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. Uh, which, again, it was, was a really good film. Um, and it was the, you know, the Universal Monsters are the first connected universe of movies. And so they did it right. Uh, and, uh, the pinnacle of uh, Abbott and Costello yeah. Take, take them all on is is a great way to introduce people to you know those characters uh, especially for kids because it's not scary or it's scary enough but still it's Abbott and Costello so it's not over the top and uh, but yeah it's a fun way to introduce kids to, to the concept of monster movies because uh, again Dracula is slow like it's tough to watch that one. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein are, are exceptional uh, with what they, how they do the stories. Uh, I, I mean, I, I have very strong fondness for Son of Frankenstein uh, with how they tell that story. So there's a lot of good stuff there. So I, I highly recommend these, uh, not just so as ways to understand the law, but just for love of filmmaking and in the history of of what we've done as you know, a culture and bringing books and stories to life and what they did in the 30s, 40s, and 50s set the gold standard for what we have today. So there's just, again, challenge you know, any underwater movie up against Creature from the Black Lagoon any day because that's how good they were in 54, if I remember right. Uh, the makeup on Lon Chaney or uh, Bar Boris Karloff, again, practical effects that you, know, you don't see match, oh, you know, exceeded definitely in something like a, 
uh, American Werewolf in London, uh, which is again the new, you know, what became the gold standard in the in the 80s. So, lots lots there. 5:30 we have uh, Star Wars. We'll have these again tomorrow as well, and with different attorney speakers, so you might get different perspectives because lawyers are funny that way. 